This is Power 1 and 2 Digital, the Power Breakfast Show podcast series. Something traffic wise, yeah. East West Corridor Chocker blocking from Diggle Martin from Maraval coming on is from Santa Cruz going up Lady Young Road, Eastern Main Road, the highway. Well, well, the highway is not too bad, you only had some traffic. Uh, pretty much after Mouska, Valencia stretch, not too bad. All right, just a little bit of volume there. Solo, yeah. Getting on to leaving San Fernando, you've got some traffic on the solids head northbound, not to volume again to Chaguanas from Cuba. Riverland Road is heavy. Passing through Calcutta number three is a bit busy, and of course from Chigagonas to CRH. You've got some traffic. Alright. Um all right, we got some more polls here. Results, well votes. Mr. Carapo says no. Miss Maloney says yes. Junior says no. Piggy Ray says yes. Ron says yes. We just um, double check all of that. Yeah, that's it, guys. That's that's all the votes I have. The added votes. So let's get the results. Well, according to um, those votes we just recorded. Um, I was just trying to add it up quickly. Um, do you support the continued reduction of the fuel subsidy? Um, at this time, we had 14 people voting on the poll this morning. Nine of you said yes, you do support it, and five of you said no. We had a really short time to vote this morning. Um, but for those of you who voted, nine of you said yes, you do support the reduction in the fuel subsidy. At this time, and five of you said no, you don't. Um, of course, um, you can continue to vote on this poll throughout the, the rest of the day through all programming, and we'll give you the final result tomorrow morning. Recording in progress. All right, thank you, Richie Rich. Of course, let's uh, bring in and introduce you to our guest this morning, um, Dr. Valmiki Arjun. Good morning, how are you? Good morning, um, and good morning to all your your listeners out there. And good morning to, by extension, Trinidad and Tobago. All right, thank you so much. Of course, and we have, as you see, we morning, have Paul Dr. and Richard and Wendell. 
How are you this morning? Oh, very good, thanks. Very good. That background looks like the old power to studio, but you're still there, right? The what, sorry? Your background. Uh-huh. This is this is actually um uh the my kinda like my study. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So you're moving the old power on to studio, I understand. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us this morning. All right, your your initial overall impression of Budget 2022 2023. So, um, well, first of all, the, the, the budget, I think, uh, as usual, as a matter of fact, and I can actually see why the Minnesota have done this because the numbers are looking good in, 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 in one aspect, right? Um, the deficit has been brought down substantially. In fact, we're looking at probably the lowest, not probably the lowest deficit we've had in over 10 years. Right. So I think that is something that, that the country could, could, could smile about, and especially the Minister of Finance, from, given where the stressful position that he's sitting in. Um, of course, keeping in mind, however, that, that the financial situation of the country is not is still not that encouraging as I would like it to be, given that we've we've had about six years of an of a overall deficit of 64 billion, largely driven by the pandemic, of course, and um, a negative growth of close to 20 percent since about 2015 or so. Um, but I think that um, uh, given given um, where the deficit is at right now and our revenue streams in the, in the, in the very near short term, um, I, I think that the, the minister has got to be uh, rather careful in the sense that you don't want a repeat of history happening. Whenever there's times of plenty coming into the economy, as there are now, how long that will last, is, how long that is going to last is yet to be seen. Political patronage tends to trump economic expediency. In the past, whenever we, we had all these substantial um, oil and gas gains, energy gains, we would have tended to, 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 to focus quite a lot on, on, on spending on various transfers and subsidies, spending on, on programs that are, that are not giving the economy such a high rate of return, um, as opposed to areas that, that would give you a, a, a much more healthy, high, a healthier high rate of return in this case, capital expenditure. I see in this budget, the, the minister has actually doubled capital expenditure from what is what it was back in, in, in 2020, which I think was a very positive thing. But I just want to caution that um, when I when I looked at the the, um, the capital expenditure projects outlined in the budget and the PSIP, um, the major ones that is much of it was was actually repeated from there since since 2016, 2017, more so the highway projects. Um, the the Valencia, sorry, the the, um, the Moruga port, the from 2018, the Togo port, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I do want to caution that when you have, even though it's the most productive area of, of, of government expenditure, which is capital expenditure, I just want to caution that they have to be careful this rounds in that they want to finish these projects, start it and finish it as quickly as possible. The longer they are there on the books, the the, the more costly they become. As they roll over year after year, the more opportunity exists for uh, issues like corruption, especially given that we still haven't finalized stringent procurement policies uh, in the country. Now, one thing I was happy that he mentioned that he spoke about, I, I want to start off more on a positive note, um, and then we can get to the issue of the fuel subsidy. I'm glad he spoke about manufacturing because I have been following the manufacturing sector for the past year and a half. Um, fairly closely, um, liaison, of course, with the Exim Bank. And I have to say, they've done a fantastic job considering the impediments and the obstacles that they face on an ongoing basis in the economy in terms of the ease of doing business. 
Um, I think they are the sector that we should really be trying to emulate because when economies reopened across the world and um, there was a surge in international spending, local manufacturers stepped up. They took advantage of this with some assistance, of course, from the Exim Bank and ramped up their production levels and, of course, their export levels, despite facing obstacles of high prices of raw materials, high prices of equipment, etc., from, from international suppliers. Um, and of course, problems that they would face on an ongoing basis to access these and to clear them quickly at the port. When I look at the data, right, um, the total overall manufacturing sector, I think it's important not to compare it from 2021 till now, because 2021, we were still in the height of the pandemic. Um, so the circumstances in the economy were, were, were vastly different. Um, I think it's important to compare it in the pre-pandemic period, the immediate pre-pandemic period. So from the first quarter of 2019, in the first quarter of this year, manufacturing actually grew by about 4%. And that includes the manufacturing activities that it comprises of petrochemicals and, um, and of course, the, the, the non-refining and petrochemicals activities. So when you factor out petrochemicals and refining, um, the non-petrochemical manufacturing actually grew by about 18%. Now, that is a, a, a significant amount of growth. And, and the, the real hero in that particular story are the food processors. Those are involved in food processing and, and, and beverages, et cetera. They would have grown by 33%. Unfortunately, in that same period, the petrochemical sector would have fallen by or declined by about 22%, of course, given the declines in, in our, um, and more so in the gas production, um, the, the gas production uh, area of things. But but the food processors are really the ones that, that capitalize on the excess demand coming out of the rest of the global economy increased their production levels. And, and as the minister would, would have in fact indicated, um, their exports alone in, 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 in um, 2021 uh, would have been in the vicinity of about 10.1 billion. Um, part of these exports were also sales from other Caribbean countries when they opened up their borders and started allowing tourists back in the countries. Um, of course, hoteliers would have, would have required um, would have would have purchased our our local food products that were that are processed here in Trinidad and Tobago um, for the for, to restock their restaurants and their, their dining services. So I really think at the end of the day, despite the burdens that the manufacturing sector have faced, they they really came out on top this time. You mentioned the government being prudent, uh, and you mentioned times are plenty. The times are plenty now as a result, of course, of the. Uh, buoyant energy commodity prices because right, of the yes. Russia-Ukraine war and uh, well, generally increased demand. We're going into a winter season, which also will mean yeah. uh, more demand, get into that mean, as well. Yeah, which could mean price hikes. Uh, not necessarily because we are we have increased output as a country. Well, you just spoke about the manufacturing sector, which uh, through processing has done better. What? Has the minister, when you disaggregated the numbers and the, the deficit, which according to his budget is shrinking, which the government promised, uh, 57 or so billion, a little 57 more billion uh, expenditure, 56 billion revenue expected. Question one, do you think the revenue projections are reasonable? And two, what is critical now? You mentioned prudent management of the economy and not spending a lot when you're making a little more. Uh Question two, do you think the possible public sector debt increasing with the 4%, if that's accepted, has been factored into that deficit? And what is critical at this point moving forward? So the 
Okay, so first of all, I want to just um, get get into the issue of the energy energy prices and, of course, what the budget has been predicated on, right? Now, the energy prices, as we're seeing here, is very, very, very volatile. Yes, of course, they're quite high, um, given more so the, the war in Russia and Ukraine. So Im important to remember that they started rising even before the war, given that economies have opened up and, and economic activities across the world started to increase. Now, our price, as you know, is, price, is, is closer usually to Brent. Now, the end of May... Brent was $122 per barrel. This dropped to about $96.55 in the end of August. And when I checked it earlier this morning, it was about $84, somewhere in that vicinity. $84.90, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, so so that's, a, that, that, that's a lot of variation when you look at, at where the prices are at. And now, now the, our budget is predicated on, on an oil price that is of about $92.50. Now, despite the energy, sorry, the um, international agencies um, indicating high oil prices for next year. One, we have to consider when those agencies would have would have forecasted those prices because it really makes no sense that we're using figures that were forecasted um, weeks to, 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 to several months ago. We should use very, very updated prices to set our forecasts and consider what's happening in the international domain. Right now in the international domain, Central banks all across the world would have reduced their, well, sorry, would have increased their interest rates. I mean, just last week alone, the Federal Reserve, I think the fifth time for the year, they increased their, their reserve rate by about 75 basis points. And the very day after, on Thursday, the UK, their, the Bank of England would have increased their rates by about 50 basis points. So it's natural that when you have this nature of um, increasing interest rates, the global economy is going to start to slow down, and it already has started slowing down. We've seen that the pace of growth in in our merchandise trading and merchandise shipping has has in fact started to slow down for for, for quite some time right now. Um, and and like those two countries that I mentioned, they aren't the only ones that increase their interest rates. You have close to fifty countries already for this year have raised their rates. So that makes it, of course, more expensive for, for businesses to to, in, to 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 borrow, to invest in their in, in their companies and their activities, etc. Um, and and at, at the same time, when the U.S. increases their interest rates, it makes the U.S. dollar much stronger. And and on a side note, we have to count all of these stars that we are pegged to the U.S. dollar, and we haven't um you know gone in a, in a, in an actual fully floating regime where we would have, in fact, this round's been. Um, our currency would have would have uh, depreciated against the U.S. dollar. So so that's actually a good thing because if that had happened, we'd be paying more to import fuel now, right? So but that's just a side note. Um, so given that the U.S. dollar is, is has by far strengthened relative to other um, other currencies, uh, the demand for oil globally has started to fall, and in that respect, that would have caused the the oil price to to, to fall also. Um, so. I think predicating this price on $92.50, to me, that's, that, that is a little optimistic at this stage. What could go in our favor, though, is that um, for, in terms of the oil price, is that by the end of the year, there's a the, the comp, the, there will be the, um, there's an embargo right now sanctioned uh, from the EU, the United Nations, uh, sorry, the, um, the European Union, sorry, um, for Russian oil, on the purchase of Russian oil. And that embargo is supposed to be fully in place by the end of December this year. That could put upward pressure on the oil price internationally. However, as you know, Russia is selling oil to China, to Asian countries, and um, and that and, and they're selling it at a very, very discounted price. So again, that could counteract some of the effects 
of the embargo and push price, the global price uh, downwards. So, so at this stage, uh, the, the story is is extremely volatile. I think it could go it, it could go either way, but I don't. I, I my, me personally, I don't see it being um, at, at the very high levels that um, that the international agency. So, so what do you think about the revenue projections based on what you've said there? Right. So, well, ah, no, that's where gas comes in. Remember, um, typically speaking, gas and oil tend to be highly correlated in terms of their prices. But in Europe, there's there's, there's a tendency, you know, there's a there's a, a strong movement um, away from oil and oil-based commodities into gas-based commodities, more so LNG. As you see, Germany, they're switching, more, they're, they're, they're doing their very best to switch more to LNG um, because it's a, it's a cleaner fuel. And of course, because they're simply not getting the gas. Europe is just not getting the gas from Russia. Um, out of the, Europe will usually get about 40% of their gas from Russia. Now, out of the gas that they typically get, they only get about 10% of that um, because far, far, far less so because of the decline in supplies due to the, the shutdown um, of the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. There's one of the major pipelines that provides gas to Europe from, 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 from Russia. So, in that respect, that that in itself could benefit could benefit us once the energy companies are selling our commodities, our products to to Europe. As you know, we have a transfer pricing problem here. So so when so so um, which which we have to of course put our foot down at some point in time and develop the, some very stringent legislations to prevent that. Um, because what is to stop them at some point in time from selling the commodities? Um, to, 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 to other subsidiaries of the energy companies in, in, in other countries at a far discounted price and we don't get the best bang for our buck. Um, so that is another one that we have to consider. One of the factors also, I think, um, why I would actually suspect that even why the minister would have set such, a, um, such an oil price or predicated the budget on this high oil price is because of the Heritage Stabilization Fund. Remember, the rules for the HSF is that once your petroleum revenues uh, at least 10% or higher, higher than 10% um, of the budgeted petroleum revenues for, 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 for any quarter, you have to, to, to deposit the excess into the HSF, into the fund. Um, and of course, if it's less than 10%, but once it's excess, he has a, the discretion, it's up to him really to, to put that excess funds into the, into the account. And um, for the year, they should deposit at least 60% of the overall excess revenues into the HSF account. That's, that's what the legislation says. Now, with such a high oil price, if it remains close to the vicinity of 92.50 or it, uh, a little bit higher or, a little bit, or, or even lower, then naturally he, he wouldn't have to put money into the Heritage and Stabilization Fund based on, on that price. The monies that are coming in, he could, he could actually spend it on, on, on whatever budgetary allocations he may have, he, he would have set in, in the budget. So that's another another thing to, to mm. pay attention to. That, that's an interesting perspective you just raised here because I was about to ask, why would you, why would he have- Just one, one quick comment though, before you get to that. Um, of course, as a caveat, it means that once the oil price were to drop, and especially if it were to drop, let's say in, in the 80s, and the, oh, sorry, in, 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 I would say in the early 80s or the 70s, et cetera, um, which personally, of course, I hope it doesn't, um, then that means the fiscal deficit is going to be higher. Yeah. Um, I think the, the projections right now are very healthy in terms of the fiscal accounts, um, notwithstanding the fact that, the, that a budget is really also supposed to be, and more importantly, in my view, a strategy 
for improving our economic welfare and improving in, and enhancing activities in the business community. But notwithstanding that, the fiscal accounts are looking very attractive and, and I sincerely hope it stays that way. Yeah. Would this have been the highest um, budgeted oil price that we would have had for the last um, maybe six or seven budgets? Yeah, I believe so. Um, I, I would have to check that back, but I, I, I certainly think so, especially given where oil prices were were at since since 2016, how low they were. It certainly would have been, in my view, but I, I need to check that back. Appreciate it. Dr. Arjun, I know um, when we spoke to several people, they, they uh, in terms of the post-budget analysis, they said some of them referred to it as a holding budget, that they didn't see enough, in their opinion, of how the government, what is the government's strategy in terms of economic plan moving the country forward to, to get to growth. They felt it was merely holding the place at this point, because we have this extra revenue coming in from the commodities in the energy sector, and yeah, yeah. It, it was a holding budget. Are you in agreement with that assessment, or do you think that there were signals in it that indicate where the government is going in terms of the economic transformation of the country? No, I think I think really it's it's more of a continuation of what exists right now. Um, there's there's nothing really new in in this budget to suggest that that. Um, that, that there's going to be a, a certain certain new avenues then that are going to to, to, to build productive capacity um and gender productive jobs etc and, 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 and our export increase our export levels etc especially outside of energy and in fact in the energy domain gas gas production is still likely to be very very low um and I you know I just want to touch touch on that a bit uh, because the you notice in the budget that he did speak about adjusting the the, the fiscal states of of um of the the energy sector um he would have adjusted the ppt he would have reduced the petroleum profits tax from 35 percent to 50 percent and he would have he would have also made some adjustments to the to the spt as well the supplemental petroleum tax remember the supplemental petroleum tax is only for oil it's not levied for gas at least not at this point in time now now while reducing the petroleum profits tax i think is i think is a good start but I don't think is he. I don't think he's as aggressive on the fiscal regime as he really ought to be. Now, I know this government has always been very, very critical of um, giving too much money away to the energy companies, and, and quite rightly so. However, when we look at the international domain, when countries like like the United Kingdom, for example, when they're giving off hundred, uh, when when they're giving out one hundred and forty percent back in capital expenditure rebates. To energy companies, especially for the, for the deep water exploration, 140%, and that is paid in, in, in one year. Um, here, when we give our our capital expenditure um, uh, rebates, is, is usually, I think, in a straight line um, allocation method, allowance method of 20, 20, 20. When in the past, it was 50% in one year, 30% in the second year, and 20% and in the third year. So based on the principle of the time value of money, where companies want cash flows coming in as quickly as possible because the value of money drops with time, um, what is really to stop? When you look at the overall regime, theoretically, what is really going to stop the energy companies um, or, or, or stop them from limiting their activities here in favor of other jurisdictions where it's um, more investment attractive? So I felt given the production environment where we're at right now, at, at, at under three billion um, SCF per day, um, I thought they should have been more, 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 more um, aggressive with, with, um, 
with the regime, with, with, with whatever they're offering. Much of our reserves, as you know, are in deep water. Uh, to monetize this requires significant capital expenditure by the upstream uh, producers. They, like every company in the private sector, they would have a specific uh, required rate of return on their investment, especially into deep water exploration, right? Because that's a major investment decision. And then, of course, there are possibilities that, that, that in their exploration, they might stumble upon a, a dry hole or a few dry holes. So the return has to compensate for the risk being taken. And I don't think a 5% reduction is likely to be adequate. Um, what they really ought to do, and, and um, I mean, I would be inclined to think they should have done this by now, but, but I mean, I can't be sure because I obviously wasn't there. None of us were. Um, is that you, see, you need to sit with the upstreamers and find out what is the rate of return that they require to bring gas production up to 4 billion standard cubic feet of gas, 4 billion SCF per day, which is going to help us to adequately meet the demands of our downstreamers. And at the same time, allow the trains, the three remaining trains at that Atlantic LNG to operate at near full capacity. I mean, when we consider where LNG prices are at in Europe right now, where the demand is for LNG right now in Europe, um, it's it's probably the highest we've ever seen in our history. And had train one been, been operational, had our production of LNG been, been healthier, then we could have capitalized on these opportunities on, uh, for, for revenue generation uh, much more. Well, coming back to that issue of, of the nature of the budget, it being just a, um, a stagnant one, it being one that is progressive. Um, I think from certain perspectives, it, it has certainly made the cost of living, made the, made the ability to, to function um, financially on a daily basis much, much more difficult. In fact, um, given that I serve also on the board of the Shagwanas Chamber, every fortnight, I tend to take a walk um, down Shagwanas Main Road, go, go to the market area, speak to, speak to some of the farmers there, speak to the shopkeepers um, in the various malls, speak to people on the streets as well, just to get a feel. Because in my view, even as an economist, the best data you can get is, is going face to face with the people on the ground. Um, and to me, that's even better than data from the CSO and IMF in, in certain respects. Now, a lot of them, if not all of them, were very concerned about the, the, the possible cap that was placed on the fuel subsidy and, and what's going to happen with the oil price, et cetera, given the fact that they're cost of living as the highest it's been for generations. Now look at it from the perspective of, of, a, of a private sector entity, especially a manufacturer or an importer. Already manufacturers, those involved in the industrial sector, those involved in agriculture, they are the ones that are going to face the highest um, brunt of the increase in the fuel prices at the pump, right? And of course that means the consumer at the end of the day is going to have to pay a higher price for their commodity. Um, consumers, of course, Householders, they're going to pay. So they're going to face higher prices. One, when they go to shop outside in, in retail outlets and in, in the supermarkets, etc. And two, they're also going to face higher prices because men because they're commuting every day. When you look at the degree of, of degree the degree of people of cars that, that have to commute from Chaguanas or Central Trinidad to Port of Spain, from San Fernando uh, or South Trinidad into Port of Spain, it's it's a significant amount and it's been this way for years. And I have to wonder if COVID nineteen taught us anything. That working from home or decentralized. Put, put, put a pin there, Dr. Ajun, because that's a different conversation we're going to get into in a while. The Prime Minister's comments uh, yesterday about uh, the indisciplined public service and the lack of infrastructure. Let's welcome Karen Yunus Teixeira, former finance minister, to our conversation. Good morning, Mrs. Teixeira. Um, Senator Richards. 
I'm just Paul here. <laughs> okay, well, and I'm just Karen here. And good morning to the rest of your panel and, of course, your listeners. You know, Thanks I am t- I'm time crunched, as I indicated yeah. previously, so that I do have... Uh, other commitments. All right, let's just get your overall initial impressions of the budget. Um, we're going to have the conversation with both of you at the same time. We understand both of you are time constrained. Yes, I think, um, well, I came in a little later here what uh, Valmiki, our June doctor, our June had to say uh, in regards to the budget. I think more or less um, in a very broad brush, I think it would be correct to say that the four hours and five minutes could have been cut down by half. Um, it was a lot of lack of structure. It was a lot of all over the place. And um, an inordinate amount of time spent on trying to convince the public that they have it right with the production for um, natural gas. I think that's what they are very, very concerned about because uh, as we all well know, we are still an energy economy and the is a combination, the factors for the revenue of price and production and the production, uh, production has definitely fallen consistently over the last four or five years. And we, I don't have to prosecute the whole thing about the failure of the deep water round and whatever else is going on. And I understood what um, Dr. Arjun was saying when he spoke about the the incentive for the deep water round is just not enough. The supplemental petroleum tax has been increased for onshore as well as shallow um, um, bids. But one has to take into account, maybe I'm just being a realist, is that the investors in all of the trains, two, three, four, as well as in the natural gas, are foreign investors. They are Shell, they are BPTT, and they owe their primary responsibility to their investors. And until um, the sharp increase in prices with the Ukraine war and all the other factors that played into it, I think they were given the clear signals that they were getting ready to pack up and pack up fairly quickly because of pressures from their shareholders and from themselves to get a renewable energy. And I think that pressure is mounting. You see the price of oil slowly drop, not slowly, but it's dropping every day, which is why I couldn't understand how the um, the minister got to $92. I know he used a lot of the factors, but he, he knows that every day when you're looking at oil and gas prices, prices can change. And it is in a downward trajectory in terms of prices for oil. When it comes to gas, I think $6 is a fairly reasonable price. We just had that whole blow up with um, Russia. As they're saying it was not an, um, deliberate, but that's another story. But LNG really is front and center because it frees them up from having to rely on the gas pipelines and getting their gas from the um, LNG. But that takes time to build out a port and they build out the ships. So what I would say in, in essence that um, one, the HSF, one, no wonder he didn't want to speak about it. All he quickly said, 1.1 billion we, TT was deposited, but then he doesn't tell you that the HSF has dropped from over 5 point something billion last year to the, about 12.5% drop. He, he doesn't want to tell you that because he's always boosted. Yes, we've taken on money, but guess what? The HSF has remained strong and resilient and so on. A little to say about that. Wasn't that wasn't that fact in the pre-budget um, um, papers that were that were submitted, Mr. Shera? It may have been any pre-budget bit, um, um, papers that you you would have been submitted, but if you spend four hours and five minutes speaking to a public um, 
on what you're going to do with the budget and spend in an ordered amount of time trying to explain your government's um, lack of performance on COVID. I don't think COVID was around in 2016, 17, 18, and 19. And in fact, he may not, I did see use real GDP this time around, but when I looked at, yes, the mere motley, yes, they, it seems to be the bugbear of um, politicians in Trinidad, but when you look at their real GDP, which he did use rather than nominal, he, you will see that um, both in Barbados, Eastern Caribbean and Jamaica, they have gone back to positive from a negative position just at the same time as the rest of us, except for Guyana, we're experiencing negative growth. And it's actually reached 10.4. Yes, the um, inflation rate is much higher all over in US, UK, in Barbados, I think it's about 10%. But you have to look and see what the drivers are. For us, our inflation rate is low, but what your Dr. Arjun was indicating is the living wage. We, what are people going to do? Value of their money. I'm glad you mentioned that. This question is to, is to both of you, starting with Dr. Arjun and then to Mrs. Tashara. Yes, the, the, the public will not be wading through the minutia of the budget, the <laughs> economy. The public is looking at, before the budget is read, food prices are skyrocketing. Their wages are stationary. In some in some instances, their wages are gone because they've lost their jobs or they are underemployed because production has cut back in some sectors. What does this budget mean for the man in the street, starting with Dr. Azu, and what they, can they expect in the next two quarters? And then Mrs. Teixeira. All right. So let me let me break this down from a business standpoint, because of course, the business from at the end of the day, the consumer is the one that, that actually has to pay the price. For whatever cost is incurred by the business community yeah so you have um importers much much of the businesses here are import intensive and they're already paying a higher cost to import from their suppliers prices internationally are much higher they're already paying higher shipping costs so in that respect when your your cost insurance and freight value is higher you're going to end up paying higher vat and duties so and that in itself already is a substantially increased cost for the business community. But in addition to that, when they have to pay um, for hauling activities, delivery from the port to their business compound, they are now going to enter to incur, and they have been incurring higher prices since April, and they're going to now incur even, um, even further higher prices just for that transportation, ju just for, for those hauling services. Um, of course, at the end of the day, that is going to be passed on to the consumer. There's a vulnerable segment in society um, that would have needed more help from the from the um, the, the from the states, and I, I was just briefly looking through the the, the um, SSIP document, the state, the, the social services investment document, and I saw that things like the food card program, the expenditure for that is actually lower than where it was uh, last year. Um, I thought at least you should have kept it in the vicinity of where it was last year because. Food prices are the highest they've ever been, and the degree of vulnerability in the country is is higher than where it was back in 20, in 2019. So I felt as though it should have been at least in the vicinity of what they were spending on the food bar program uh, last year, and also the school feeding program, etc. I felt that um, in the past he mentioned um, the possibility of of, of having um, like a fuel cash card or utility cash cards, etc. I, I I was hoping to see that because at the end of the day you have to protect the vulnerable. And, and that, in my view, has not been done. In fact, has been worsened because of the, the increase in the cost uh, of fuel. In fact, um, I'll mention this. 
speaking to some 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 people even before the budget given the high cost of fuel that 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 some persons in rural areas are experiencing um and and what was happening is that because school has started back many of them are finding it very difficult to get their kids to school and in terms of public transportation some of them are paying as much as 25 to 30 dollars per child per day for public transportation just to get that just to get that child to school and in fact a few of them um have been telling me after the budget that it seems that some of the the uh, taxis don't want to come into the rural areas to, to, to pick up the kids um just in front of their homes they have to walk out the road which is a bit of a distance and that in itself is taking a lot of time causing their kids to reach the school late and and some some are even joking well just now but it mightn't very well be a joke just now they had to start up walking to school like like my parents would have done many many decades ago decades ago so and, and these are real issues these are real possibilities because of how high the cost of living is i don't know if i have time for this sir, but i would love to share some data with you all because i did a, a little small survey um just put up in and let me just share respond on the on the issue of the impact on the everyday citizen yes well um i think um what we've really been doing and what uh, understandably is looking at what's wrong so i think we have to try to find out what can we do to make it right and it's not going to happen by waving a magic wand but if i look at the uk for example which has a, a inflation rate of 10 point something percent it's being driven by food and energy prices what the current chancellor is trying to push then is to push growth and i think what the government needs to it's not going to happen overnight but i think it's going to be a positive for the country and i think a lot of the persons who fall into the so-called um lower lower income which are the ones that we should encourage to become micro entrepreneurs and, and i saw very little mention about them and i don't think people recognize that a micro entrepreneur can be up employ as many as 25 people and grows 5 million a year I think there are a lot of chow kings who don't come into that vicinity and it was not mentioned. So if I were to give any sort of advice to the government, the inflation rate has been driven a lot by food, but look at our food import bill, 80%, it has gone up even more. And there's a lot of food that is being imported, as we well know, by the major food um, suppliers that are quite unnecessary. I'm not talking about cereal, but do we have to have 10 versions of oil? Do we have to have 10 versions of coffee? Do we have to have all these franchises in this country that are low paying? No, we don't. And a lot of that money can be put into a lot of that money that's being spent on low paying dead end jobs in which the beneficiaries are certainly at the top percent of our economy, which is really counter to what a government's responsibility is. And what the government should be looking more at is the Gini coefficient, which tells you the spread the economic inequality in the country because all of the international organizations will tell you it is not poverty that is really the issue it is income inequality and i think that the government has not prepared to deal with that and dealing with it by using subsidies as the panacea cannot continue because it continues to draw down on our trend on our revenues it continues to leave them in a place of um uh, a hopelessness and building more HTC houses, which you cannot take to the bank to borrow any money because it does not constitute collateral, is not helpful. So the government has to take a quasi-Keynesian um, approach, as they're doing in England, as they've done in America when they needed to do it, even with their stimulus check, 
And what they need to do is pull these people out of there. Those that you can make them micro entrepreneurs. And one area is the agro and agro industry so that we can reduce our 5.7 billion import of food, which I, if you go into the, um, the, the supermarket association has said that 85% of the food they find in our, in our, in our supermarkets are imported. And even those that are not imported, just let me just say this because I am going to run out of time. And I do want to make the point that, um, even his reluctance to devalue the dollar has a lot to do with the fact that the so-called manufacturing sector imports nearly everything that they use to so-called make anything. And if you look at the figures, the only areas that made money, um, and in fact, nearly every part of the non-energy sector had losses of all 49, 56%. It was food and beverage and tobacco. Well, I don't know that we go tobacco and all that tit, red beans and lentils and and black beans and they put into tins, into tins, those tins are brought in as, as are the products into which they're put in. So I think the government needs to focus on the micro entrepreneur and create growth poles so that they can reduce over time the impact of inflation, which is really the purchasing power of your dollar. Just one thing, Lebanon, Lebanon, just yesterday, they said people were literally holding up the banks to get their savings because their purchasing power, their salary, which is $800 to the US dollar because of the 95% devaluation in their currency and their whole import situation, their money is worth $30. So we don't want to go there. We want to grow the economy. We want to help those who are on subsidies to become uh, entrepreneurs. And it's going to take time, but we need to do that. And of course, deal with crime, which is a big barrier to our achieving any of our objectives and finally mr sharon before you go before you go I, I, well, I, you will have you will have this stage no no i know no, I, no, no I, it's so a I question just, i want to it's a question i just let me just make a very broad thing and i will answer mm -hmm. and um the, the the overall problem with this government which is proven it has earned the lack of trust and confidence in it with the trade what train one with the AV drilling, with the paria, with the lack of implementation year after year after year after year. So if people do not believe what the prime, what the minister said on Monday in his four hours and five minutes speech, a regurgitation of things he has been saying for the last seven years and given deadlines so when things are happening, if people don't have any confidence in it, and confidence is the key to an economy thing. So that's my overall um, commit. Um, uh, right. Point. So Paul would have asked um, the both of both of our, our our guests what impact the budget would have had on the small man. My question to both of you all, and you can go first, Mrs. Sisher, as a former finance minister. Is there <laughs> anything at all you agree with in the budget? Anything at all? I well, um, I agree that the. Um, well, it was really, you're really giving me a tough question because I understand why the government has to put a, 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 a cap on the on the fuel subsidy. I'm not sure they've thought out that thing with diesel well because when I look back at the figures, he may be saying he's putting 50 cents. You know, that's the kind of thing he does because up to 2016, it was 150 or something. Now it's gone to 441. So, and, he's, and then this idea of the $500 you're giving people to do what with? say that they're going to have more money to be able to have disposable income to have the economy to, to fast track. No, it's poor people to be able to pay their um to pay for food. But, but you're still so criticizing. I have a lot of, a lot of problems. 
well, yes. I, because I'm trying to be fair. I'm mm. trying to be fair. And I started by saying, Wendell, I started by saying, and I think that is the consensus across the board regardless, is that the lack of implementation of this government, the number of broken promises by this government, and the lack of confidence and trust in what they say. Get every single year, this Minister of Finance gets the, the numbers on, on, on the um, energy prices wrong. And I still think he got it wrong. Even though he went at length to show why he should do it, you are seeing the prices of oil dropping, and yet he put it at 92. When I was in government, what I understood is you took a very conservative approach because the media review allowed you the space to make adjustment. He wants his revenue to look good as he always wants it to look good. So the fiscal deficit does not look that bad. And I think that's. Well, do you agree? Do you trust the numbers the minister is presenting? No, but they can't because the best predictor. Well, I'm asking down the key, though. Oh, oh, okay. well, so I have to go through. Earlier part of our conversation, we, we spoke Thanks, about that. Th Thanks, Mrs. Sishara. Thank you very much, Wanda. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye bye. Yes, Ramiki. Mrs. Tashara has said that the, the minister's numbers have not been credible over many years. Do you agree with that? Well, his forecasts um, in terms of energy production and pricing has never been really accurate. Um, so yeah, in, in that respect, I certainly do agree. Um, as, as we spoke of earlier, I think I think he has really pegged the pegged the the, um, the, oil, the the budget on an oil price. That is too high given given where oil prices are at right now. The only thing, in my view, that could really cause oil prices to remain in that vicinity is what happens when there's a European Union embargo coming into full effect in December. But then again, that could be mitigated when um if if and when Asia continues to buy oil from Russia at a severely discounted price. And if other countries decide to step in the picture too and buy their oil instead of what's available in the rest of the world. So that's that's one 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 key factor to consider. Now uh, in the gist of our conversation so far, and based on also what Mr. Sherrill has been talking about, um, confidence in the business community. And, and you know, my, I have a, a, a partial for the, for, the, for the SME community from ever since. And um, I don't really think anything at all was, was, was um, offered to, as a catalyst, a continued catalyst then to push the SME community forward. Um, far less the, the, the overall business community. But I just want to focus on the SME community here. We've had, since the pandemic started, the, the SME loan facility from the commercial banks, um, partnering with the government. And I, I was really hoping to find out from the numbers from the government as to as to what or how many persons or entities would have benefited from this. And, and from that program, how many entities were, were managed to, to become registered um, from so they're no, no longer operating in the parallel economy, no longer dodging their taxes, etc. They became registered so they could take advantage of this. But up to now, we don't really have that data. I remember some time ago, he said it was very successful. But when you speak to bankers, senior bankers, they're telling you a very different story. So I would I really wanted to hear information about that. What I think, however, we need to do for the SMEs in the country, their biggest problem is financing. At the end of the day, financing and financing in terms of US dollars. Yes, the Exim Bank has helped a lot of, of, of companies, but those are primarily manufacturers. Outside of the manufacturing base, you have a significant need for foreign exchange among the SME community. I think what needs to happen is that, that we need to set up what is known as a fiduciary fund for, the, for, for, for SMEs here. Now, what that entails is where the multilaterals will provide funding. They set up this fund in US dollars for these SMEs. 
and the so so that fiduciary fund that contains that owns these these um these us the, the, these us dollars will then not lend these SMEs US dollars, but they will purchase a stake in the SME community, in, in, in the SME, uh, the, in the company. So that stake could be a, a minority stake, of, all, of course, is about maybe 10% or 20%, whatever the case is, up to the discretion of the SME owner. And they put, so therefore, the fund itself is purchasing ownership in that company, paying in US dollars, which is therefore giving them a, a stock of US in which they can use. To, ex- to, to, to expand the scope of their operations or whatever the case may be. That to me is a, is a, is a significant step in assisting the, the private sector in, in, in boosting their operation, particularly SME community. And another thing, the minister spoke at length about digitization. Now, I agree 100% with, with the digitization thrust and a fintech thrust, especially since we are light years behind other countries in terms of fintech. I mean, Jamaica and, and um, the Bahamas, they, they already have a, digital, a central bank digital currency. Um, I think it's called Jandex in, the, in, in Jamaica and the sand dollar in, in, um, in, 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 in the Bahamas. And a digital currency can do a lot to mitigate financial fraud, money laundering, and the list goes on and on. I'm surprised that- there, Dr. I think we have to stop for the news. And I hope you have more time to just continue just a three minute newscast. So can you hold? Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, thank you. Thank you for choosing Power 102 Digital. Listen every weekday for our live show starting at 6 a.m. Remember, like, share, and subscribe. Power 102 Digital.